Can you believe that Christmas is 17 days away? Are you ready? You have all your shopping done? Yeah, me too. Now, we, uh, we've got all the, the festivities in full swing. We had the Christmas in the Commons last Sunday night. Um, this afternoon, we're going to be hosting the, the elders' uh, Christmas open houses. Yesterday, Mayor Mark Guffey, who was just up here leading us in worship, flipped the switch for the mayor's Christmas tree lighting, Christmas shopping. Amy was at Target yesterday, and she called me, and she goes, it's a madhouse here. Like, I do, I do not like going to Lee Summit at the Christmas season because that traffic around Target is insane. Have you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? It definitely feels like Christmas. And then you add to all of that, all of these events at the church and in our community and the Christmas shopping, and you add to all that the, the uh, meals and dinners that you're going to be having with your family and the gift exchanges, and, and it, it really feels like Christmas, doesn't it? And Thanksgiving was just like, what, a day ago? It was so late this year that it kind of just ran together. But if I had to describe any year, not just this year, but if I had to describe what the feeling of the Christmas season is, the word that I would use is anticipation, right? We anticipate events. We anticipate getting to eat lots of food, seeing loved ones that we don't often get to see, people coming in from out of town, things like that. We anticipate giving and receiving of gifts because that's kind of fun, isn't it? So it it kind of feels like just a, a season of anticipation. Well, the word anticipation, I think, has in our vernacular, kind of more of a a sense of certainty than, unfortunately, the word hope has taken on. When we use the word hope, we kind of use it like, fingers crossed, I hope the Chiefs beat the Patriots today, right? And now it'd be nice if we could be certain of that, and if we felt more certain of that, we would say, I anticipate that the Chiefs will beat the Patriots, doesn't that have a different connotation when you, when you say, I anticipate this, rather than saying, I hope? I hope I get that official Red Rider carbine action, 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. But Ralphie didn't know for certain. He didn't say, I'm anticipating getting that. He said, I hope. But anticipation, at least in our day, at least in my mind, has a more nuanced meaning. And so it kind of sounds more like the biblical notion of hope. See, Scripture uses hope in a very different way than we do in our modern language. That's what I hope to show us today. And the passage that we're going to be looking at, it's that kind of anticipation. It's that kind of certainty looking forward that I want us to have in mind. Not, I sure hope this turns out to be true, but instead, as we'll see, a certainty. So if you have your Bible or a smart device, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And while you're getting to that passage, uh, we're going to be reading just a few selections from this chapter today. So read this with me, and I'll have this on the screen as well. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher. Help us to understand what we've just read. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. So the verses that we just heard are probably pretty familiar to many of us. This is what a pastor friend of mine calls a coffee mug verse. It's a familiar verse. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen. A verse like this is so familiar to many of us that it can lose its power because we don't really think about the words that we're reading. We just talked about that as we sang an old hymn that was unfamiliar. It forces us to think about the words, doesn't it? So I want to challenge our thinking today about the words. Listen to this. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. A lot of times when we use the word faith, we almost unthinkingly attach it to the notion of believing something even though we don't know for sure. Don't we? Well, you just got to have faith. And we use that in a way that Scripture doesn't. But this verse tells us that's not what faith is. We see here that faith is sure. You see that word tucked in there? Sure, assurance. It is sure. Now, the word translated as assurance is, in fact, a word borrowed from the academic study of philosophy. And the word literally means an underlying reality or substance as opposed to attributes or that which lacks substance. Does that challenge your thinking about what faith is? Listen to that again. An underlying reality or substance. That means it's substantial. It has meat. It's not just an idea. It's a certainty. And then it goes on and it says faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now again here we've got a word that's borrowed from another discipline. Now conviction, many of us Some of us maybe firsthand know that the word conviction comes from the court of law. Most of us have an idea of what the word conviction conveys. But conviction here, while it does come from a legal word, the legal system, it it comes from this weird word called elankus. This is a legal term that lawyers use, and the Collins English Dictionary defines elankus as a logical refutation especially one that disproves a proposition by proving the direct contrary of its conclusion. Listen to that again. A logical refutation, especially one that disproves something by proving the direct contrary. We have conviction about who God is. Are you with me? This verse tells us that even though you may not see it, faith proves that it's true despite appearances. Now, you might be asking, what does it prove, right? I'm up here saying it proves that it's true. And you're going, what does it prove? And that's a great question. But you're getting ahead of the text. That was terrible timing. Why did you ask that question there? We'll get to that later. Hold your horses. But I'm okay with the tension of that lingering for a moment because I think the passage that we're looking at does that. It creates a tension where it wants us to ask these questions. Faith proves what? And so we're left hanging for a bit. But verses 2 and 3 give us two things to consider, God's commendation and God's creation. Okay, look at verse 2 with me. God's commendation, for by faith the people of old received their commendation. To commend someone just means to speak well of them. Somebody does something, does a good job, right? Okay, this morning I was just talking with Christy Harrison, and she's overseeing our children's ministry, and she just came by to chat about something. I just said, you know what? You're doing an awesome job. Isn't Christy doing an incredible job with our children's ministry? Really, I mean, that's commending her. But why were the people of old not just spoken well of by one another? It says they received their commendation. Their commendation from whom? From God. 
They were commended by God, not because of their works, not because of what they could accomplish on their own. They were commended because of their faith, because they substantially disproved their fears. What fear, you might ask? And again, you've got this terrible habit of asking these questions way before the text gets to that, so just wait. Be patient. It's like a Christmas gift that we're going to unwrap in a bit. And this is, again, this sense of anticipation at this time of year. Does anybody have little ones or have had little ones? We do. And, and man, it's the hardest thing in the world for me to, to take Olive to Target right now because <laughs> she sees all the things she wants. And I go, okay, sis, I know that a month is like a, a significant portion of your life right now, but we're not going to buy any toys for the whole next month every time we go to Target. But why? Like, we always buy toys when we go to Target because I'm a pushover. But no, not right now. So that's, that's what I want with these questions. What does faith prove? What fears does faith disprove? For now, isn't being spoken well of by God a worthwhile incentive? If we received nothing else from his gracious hand, wouldn't it be worth everything to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Enter in and share in your master's joy. That's God's commendation. And the second consideration here, the first is God's commendation. The second is God's creation. In verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, if you happen to be taking notes, you may find it helpful to jot this down. God's word does three things in our text today. God's word creates crushes, and comforts. And we're going to unpack what that means. Firstly, God's Word has creative power. In the first chapter of Genesis, we read that God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. This is an altogether different kind of creating than what you and I partake in. Miss Gwen does a wonderful job of, of decorating the commons and the sanctuary, and she's an artist when she does that. And she makes this place a beautiful place, but she doesn't create something out of nothing. She takes what God has created, and she creates something new from it. That's not how it is when God spoke and he created. He didn't say, hey, you light particles, gather and let there be light. He said, let there be light, and what was not there before was now there. Think about this. His word gave substance to nothingness. His word created something out of nothing. That's the creative power of God's word. When God speaks, it happens. His word is certain, and we see from creation, the author of Hebrews tells us, that we can have confidence that when God speaks, it's going to happen. It's not a maybe. When God says, it happens. With that in mind, God's Word has crushing power. It didn't take long after God created for our first parents to disobey. We don't know how long of a time period that was. I don't think it was a very long time at all. I don't think Adam and Eve were in the garden for hundreds of years before they disobeyed God. The serpent came in, and he deceived them. He deceived Eve. Scripture tells us Adam wasn't deceived, and yet he still sinned. That's quite an indictment on Adam, isn't it, amen? That's not saying Adam, Adam wasn't deceived. Isn't he great? 
He knew better, and yet he still sinned. But there's two things that I want us to be aware of about sin at all times, and perhaps even more so in this incarnation season. First, Adam sinned because he wanted to. He was not forced by any outside force to do what he did. He chose freely to sin. And the second thing that I want us to note is that God wasn't surprised. He knew Adam would sin. So we said a moment ago, enter your your master's joy as that commendation from God. What is our master's joy? He found joy by creating. He didn't create because he was lonely, contrary to one popular belief. He was not lonely. God has eternally existed in perfect communion in his triune self, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So he wasn't lonely. He didn't create you because he needed a friend. And if God knew that Adam would sin, it gives us an indication of why he created. His joy is found, first of all, in creating, but ultimately in redeeming his creation, in taking what we broke and making it whole again. And that's what Jesus came for. That's what Christmas is about. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam sinned, God is pronouncing curses upon the serpent and upon Adam and Eve. But as he's doing so, he says this in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. But as I've said on many occasions, women don't have seed. Think about this with me. It says the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Women don't have seed. In other words, this is what theologians call the first gospel. This is the first promise of the rescuer who would come and be born of a virgin. And God tells Adam and Eve that this one, this virgin-born rescuer, would defeat the serpent who had deceived them. This is the crushing power of God's word. He speaks and it happens. And he said there's a rescuer coming who will be born of a virgin and he will crush the head of the serpent. The language that Genesis 3 uses is that it says that the serpent will bruise his heel and he will bruise the serpent's head. That sounds like kind of soft language, doesn't it? But would you rather have a bruised heel or a bruised head? I think I'd rather have a bruised heel. And if the heel of the rescuer comes down on the head of the serpent, it ultimately is a crushing blow. So the word of God has crushing power. Then in the New Testament, John's gospel begins talking about the rescuer in this way. This is, again, a familiar passage in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then down in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, and the Word, put this on your Christmas card, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the crushing rescuer. The word of God crushes the head of his enemy. It's Christ himself, the living word, who came and has bruised the head of the serpent. But like the contrast in Scripture between a lion and a lamb, this word who has crushing power also has comforting power. Before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. When God speaks, it happens. He told us he's coming again, brothers and sisters. And he says, and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. You see, even when Jesus knew that his physical death, his murder on that cross was imminent, he was so interested in the spiritual and emotional welfare of his friends that he deigned to forget about his own suffering for a moment and encourage and comfort them. Maybe you're here today and you are discouraged and you're downtrodden. We serve a Savior who loves to comfort his people. Comfort my people with the word of promise that Christ is coming. So what have we seen about God's word so far? He spoke and nothing became everything. He spoke and fulfilled his promise of the rescuer who would crush the enemy. And he spoke and said he would come again. And here we are, waiting, anticipating. Not, I sure hope he comes again. But I know he's coming again because his track record proves his faithfulness. And though we haven't yet seen his return, we have assurance, we have conviction that he will come again. To assure us of his faithfulness even further, Hebrews 11 famously begins listing some of the heroes of the Old Testament. Now, we won't take the time to look at most of them today, but I do want to take a few minutes just to look at the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So look with me at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hey, Pleasant Hill's a great town, isn't it? It's an awesome town, and I'm proud to live here. But it pales in comparison to the city whose builder and architect is God. That's the city I look forward to. That's the city that Abraham looked forward to. Now listen, I love the way that these verses that we just read began. It says that Abraham obeyed when he was called. What it more literally means is that Abraham obeyed while he was being called. He didn't wait for God to finish talking before he began to obey Why does this matter? Because we're trying to understand the nature of faith. And Abraham models it for us here. It's substantial faith. It's the kind of certain anticipation that we've been talking about. The kind of faith that disproves appearances to the contrary. Abraham obeys while being called. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we can't seek clarification from God's word. When we sense that the Lord is calling us to do something, the better part of wisdom says, I want to understand what you're saying, God. I don't want to get out ahead of you. So it's not saying that we can't seek clarification from God in Scripture. But this picture gives us is that while the the Lord is speaking to Abraham, he's getting his boots on. I mentioned a few moments ago that substantial faith. It's faith with, with substance. That it disproves not only appearances, but fears. And here's a good example with Abraham of what I'm talking about. In Genesis chapter 12... The Lord appears to Abram, and he says, 
this. He says, go from your country and your family to the land that I will show you. He's not showing it to him yet. He's just telling him he will show it to him. And I will make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and curse whoever dishonors you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is, again, a promise about the coming rescuer. But here's what you've got to understand about this encounter. Abram didn't yet know the Lord. (laughs) Think about this with me for a moment. He didn't know the Lord of Israel. He was a pagan, and God appears to him and shows him his favor and blesses him. Abram was a worshiper of false gods. Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous. No one seeks for God. If you're in Christ today, it's not because you sought him, it's because he sought you. And he did this with Abram. He sought him out. Abram was very likely sitting in a tent surrounded by idols made by hand. (laughs) These false gods who couldn't see, who couldn't hear, who couldn't speak. And the Lord, the God of Israel, appears to Abram and commands him to get up and leave everything he'd ever known. He doesn't give him any kind of greeting. He just launches into what was probably the craziest thing Abram had ever heard. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. If God showed up to you and said, hey, you know that life you've got? Give it all up. All of it. Go get in your minivan and just start driving, and I'll show you where to go. That would be terrifying. And yet, Abram sees the Lord face to face, and while the Lord is commanding him, he's going, yeah, let me just get my boots. That's encouraging to us, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Have you ever had that experience of not knowing where you're going? When Amy and I lived in Philadelphia, it was not long after we got married. We've been married for 13 years, so this was 11 or 12 years ago. And we had one vehicle at the time, and I took her to work that morning, and then I went and met one of our deacons for lunch at the King of Prussia Mall. Um, had an awesome lunch with him, getting to know the guy. And then I said, well, I, I really better get going. I need to pick Amy up from work. And I got in the car, and I got on the Jersey Turnpike the wrong way. And the thing about the Jersey Turnpike, unless I'm mistaken, I could not find a way to turn around. I was headed to New Jersey. <laughs> and anyway, long story short, uh, Amy was very gracious when I picked her up from work three hours late that day. I didn't know where I was going. And it didn't go well for me. And it was scary. And it made me angry. But this is how it was for Abraham. It wasn't that he knew where he wanted to be and just couldn't find his way, like me. He didn't even know where the Lord was sending him, and yet he obeyed. Man, that is the kind of faith that says to fear and doubt. I don't know who you think you are, but I serve the God who speaks and the universe leaps into existence. I'm doing what he says. And it was this way with Abram's wife, Sarah, too. Now, this is an important note to make here. Abraham and Sarah responded to the Word of God differently, but it didn't change the power of God's Word. He wasn't limited by their response. He wasn't just waiting for them to give him permission to move. Listen to what Hebrews says about Sarah in verse 11. 
By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. That's an understatement, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, it would be awesome if every believer responded the way that Abraham did. If God is calling us, and while he's calling us, we obey. But if you recall, that isn't exactly how Sarah responded. In fact, in Genesis 18, 12, we read that after the Lord told Abraham that Sarah would conceive and bear a son, do you remember what she did? She laughed. <laughs> She's eavesdropping from behind the tent, and she hears the messenger of the Lord tell Abraham, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a child. And she goes, ah! <laughs> Have you ever laughed at something that God promised? It's honestly a pretty understandable response for Sarah, isn't it? She was 90 or 91 years old when the Lord told her that she would conceive. That would be like someone today being born in 1929, being told that this time next year you'll be giving birth to a baby. That's crazy. But this served not only to prove that nothing is impossible for God, nothing is too hard for the Lord, but also as another reminder of the virgin-born rescuer. Every time through the Old Testament when we see a child being born to someone who was the most improbable candidate for motherhood, we're being reminded of the promise that he gave in the garden. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Women don't have seed. Ninety-year-olds don't give birth, and neither do virgins. But as the angel said to 14-year-old Mary after he had told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her and that she would conceive and bear a son, and then he tells her that her relative, Elizabeth, whom Luke tells us was barren and advanced in years, that she is also six months pregnant, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing not even forgiving a wicked sinner such as myself, not even forgiving someone like you. And if you're even remotely aware of how wicked and sinful and wretched we are apart from him, that notion would be laughable if it weren't so incredibly good. But Hebrews 11, verse 11, goes on to say something profound about Sarah. Yeah, she laughed. But who wouldn't? It tells us why she received power to conceive. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Just a chapter earlier in Hebrews 10.23, we read, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Because what? He who promised is faithful. Do you consider him faithful like Sarah did? Do we, despite all appearances to the contrary, have conviction that he who promised is faithful to do all that he said he would do. You see, Christmas is the season when we focus very intentionally on the birth, the incarnation of the rescuer, Jesus the Messiah. It was his taking the form of a servant, as Paul tells the Philippians, which all the saints of the Old Testament looked forward to, and which all of us here today who have trusted him for the forgiveness of our sins look back upon. But ours is not only a hope in what has happened already chronologically in time, we also have something to look forward to. You'll remember that there was that promise of comfort that I mentioned earlier from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
I go to prepare a place for you. If you're in Christ today, brothers and sisters, we have a home in eternity with Him. And it's surer than the rising of the sun each morning. Do you have faith that the sun will rise tomorrow? Probably. Most of us live our lives like that's true. And yet it is less sure than the Word of God. As the lyrics of the beautiful new hymn say, does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell with us again? He does. So the word anticipation doesn't really seem to capture the essence of the season anymore. It's a fine word. It's a start. It gets us headed in the right direction. But haven't the words assurance and conviction started to take its place? So what now? Maybe you are beating yourself up today for past sins. Maybe you are finding your identity in your old nature. But if you're in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has passed away, the new has come. Remember this, that Hebrews purposefully leaves out the part where Sarah laughed at the promise of God. Purposefully leaves out the part where she took matters into her own hands and gave her handmaiden to Abraham to conceive Ishmael. In the hall of faith, this chapter, Hebrews 11, we're not told about all the things that she did wrong. We're told about what was right. Not her works, but her faith. Not Abraham's works, but his faith. Because it's not about how big or strong our faith is, which saves us. It's about how faithful the one in whom we place our faith is. And lastly, maybe you're like Abraham, obeying even as God is calling you. Unfortunately, most of us are accustomed to this phrase, called by God, to refer to vocational ministry. Men such as myself who are uh, full-time pastors. But make no mistake, each and every follower of Christ is called by God. To what? First and foremost, to faith. God is calling you to faith. Even you who are Christians today, God is calling you to faith. It's a present participle. The calling has not ended. You are being called into faith in Christ. Also, we are called to lives of holiness. As God is calling you even now to a life of holiness, am I willing to respond as urgently as Abraham? When God speaks to your heart through His Word and reveals to you an area of sin that you have not put to death, are you comfortable sitting in your sin? Or are you standing up immediately responding to His voice in faith and leaving that pagan lifestyle? Are you willing to respond as Mary when the angel told her of the birth of Jesus? She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. As Mary carried Jesus in her womb for nine months, so too are each of us called to carry the Savior to the